Welcome to the Get Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Liz McGavro, and I'm obsessed with all things writing, creativity, and telling your stories in your authentic voice, because I believe a good story can change the world. Ever since I was a little girl with my nose in a book, I dreamed of being an author. I wanted to see my books in bookstores everywhere. I wanted to talk about books. I wanted to soak up everything about the craft. My celebrity crushes were mostly authors and I could feel in my bones that the writer's life was my destiny. Fast forward to today. Along with my alter ego, Kate Conti, I'm an Agatha Award-nominated best-selling author with three mystery series, but it wasn't all smooth sailing along the way. I experienced many setbacks, crushing self-doubt, a lot of career detours, and I even lost my voice a few times when I let the world get in my way. Until I learned that writing was so much more than just a skill set you learned and developed over time. It's also an inside job that flourishes when you heal all the wounds that are stifling your creativity, which is no easy task. So if you're a writer of any kind, or if you've always wanted to write but aren't sure where to start, this is the place for you, my friend. We're gonna talk about all things writing process, craft, strategies to help you get writing and stay writing, the daunting world of agents, editors, and publishing, And because I'm using my authentic voice, I'm going to throw in a little woo-woo for you too. So let's get writing, shall we? McGavro, and I'm so excited for my conversation today. I'm talking with a dear friend, fellow author, and blog mate of mine on the Wicked Authors blog, Jessica Ellicott. We've known Jesse for the past decade, maybe longer, when we embarked on this publishing journey together. And now, multiple identities, many books, and a couple of Agatha nominations later, we're still doing this thing together, and I'm so grateful to have her in my circle. One of the topics I talk about a lot on the blog and that I'll be covering here on the podcast is plotting and pantsing, an age-old debate about which one is, quote, better. I'll give you a hint, neither. It's all about whatever process works for you. Um, But I started out as a hardcore pantser, and for those who aren't familiar with the term, it's a writer who flies by the seat of their pants with no outline, just lets the story happen. And then plotters, pretty self-explanatory, they plot. And I've always envied plotters, kind of in the way that you envy somebody with a skill you just know that you're never really going to get the hang of, even if you can kind of muddle through. But during one really hairy deadline in my life, I wrote myself into a huge corner and I could not get out. It was when I was writing the Positively Organic Mysteries. It was um, book six and... I was right in the middle of all kinds of personal crises. I was moving. I was just not in a good headspace. And to make matters worse, I'd screwed up my deadline and my book was due a month earlier than I thought, which at that point was less than two months away. And one of those months was February. And you know what that means, right? You lose a bunch of days in February. So it couldn't really get worse than that. (laughs) At that point, I think I had about 40,000 words written And I would say maybe 20,000 of those words needed to go away because they just were wrong. So I was kind of in big trouble. And 
my publisher was very clear that they were pushing up the publication date and there was no wiggle room. I needed to make this deadline. So when I realized my mistake, I did what I usually do in cases of writing and publishing trauma. And I got on an email with my wicked sisters and I told them what I had done and how screwed I was basically. And Jessie in her infinite wisdom and kindness emailed me back and said, I can help you untangle your plot if you want. And of course I said, yes, because I'm not a dummy. And so we got on a FaceTime and we got busy with some post-it notes. And within like 15 minutes, the plot hole that I had and the corner that I worked myself into was fixed. Within an hour, the rest of the book was plotted out based on this new direction. And that made it a heck of a lot easier to finish writing, even though I was, you know, again, less than halfway done the book at that point. And I mean, it was like close, but I miraculously made that deadline. (laughs) I've never gone back to my old ways. Um, ever since then, I don't start writing books until I have a plotting session with Jesse. It's just not a thing anymore. And I'm so grateful for her amazing ability to ask the right questions and get me on the right path. So today we're going to talk about how on earth she does this because I'm still trying to figure it out. And I know you guys are going to get a lot of value from this conversation. So here's her bio. Agatha Award nominee Jessica Ellicott loves fountain pens, red convertibles, and throwing parties. She lives in northern New England with her dark and mysterious husband, exuberant children, and a precocious poodle named Sam. When away from her desk, she obsessively knits wool socks and enthusiastically speaks Portuguese with a shocking disregard for the rules of grammar. She indulges her passion for historical fiction and all things British by writing the Beryl and Edwina Mysteries and WPC Billy Harkness Mysteries. Jessica's books have twice received starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, as well as one from Library Journal. Her first novel won the Daphne du Maurier Award for Mystery. As Jessica Esteval, she wrote The Change of Fortune Mysteries. And when inspiration strikes, she writes contemporary mysteries as Jessie Crockett. Whether you're a plotter or a pantser or not even sure what type of writer you are, I know you'll love this episode. So let's get into it. Welcome, Jessie. I'm so happy to have you here. I've been dying for this conversation. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure. It's always fun to visit with you. Yes. I love our chats. So we're here to talk about plotting, which is my favorite subject and also my least favorite subject because I struggle with it so much. (laughs) So when I first (laughs) met you, (laughs) we were mostly in the same boat, right? We both had new contracts, new agents, new publishers, new deadlines, all the things, right? And you had already published one book, your Sugar Grove series. You were starting your Sugar Grove series and you had published one book before that. So with all of that said, were you a plotter from the beginning or a was this a skill that you acquired and honed over time? So I was not a plotter in the beginning. My very first book, I had no idea what I was doing. And I was quite certain I had no idea what I was doing. So I just plunged ahead and just to figure out what was happening. And it, it was kind of stressful. I think anyone who started their first novel, especially without a plot, can relate to that. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. I, I actually... <laughs> I actually didn't plot my first two novels. So my very first novel was uncontracted. So I was writing it with no clarity about whether or not anyone would ever publish it. So it didn't have a deadline and I could really meander and sort of figure things out. And then I got a contract for three books and I wrote the first book the same way I'd, this first book in that contract, the same way I'd written my very first book. But I found it really stressful, and I felt like 
a lot of pressure, like maybe I wouldn't meet my deadline and I knew that there would be revisions and all of this stretching in front of me. So that by the second book in that contract, I felt like I needed to make a change in my process. And for that book, and then three books that followed it, I wrote an outline, scenes for an outline for the first third of the book, and then I would write that section. And by the time I got to the end of writing that section, I'd have some clarity around the next third of the book, and I would plot that out, structure it, and then write that, and then plot the last of it, and then write that. And that worked pretty well for me for those four books. I felt like I had enough of a handle on what I was doing when I showed up at the desk each day to really maximize my efforts, but that I didn't have the stress of needing to figure it all out at once. But then (laughs) I got a contract with a new editor. It it worked out. I mean, it was an easing from nothing to something. So when I, the time came to work with a new editor who asked for a full synopsis, a full outline for an upcoming book that he wanted to approve before I started writing it, that's where the switch came in to completely plotting a novel before I began the writing of it. And I've done that ever since. I found it the evolution from no plotting to fully plotting to have been a good growth space for me. I find it works really well at this point to do it that way. So I've kept it up. Hmm. Okay. So let me ask you then about your synopsis, because I didn't know that's when you made the actual switch. So when you did your synopsis, did you do like a really long one or did you just kind of, you know, outline the basic story in a few pages and then kind of fill it in before you started writing? Like I'm, I'm interested in that because I've been, you know, uh, same thing with me. I've been doing the synopsis and I've been throwing down what I think the story is going to be. And, you know, in my head, I'm like, well, I can change it later. And I think that's, you know, kind of what stops me from getting really into the plotting piece. <laughs> so I was told that this editor wanted a really detailed synopsis, like a minimum of 10 single space pages. And I thought, I'm just going to go ahead and outline the whole book. Because for me, that would be easier to do that. It was more in alignment with what I already had built as a skill. And I did struggle with it to start. I found that I kept feeling like a bit overwhelmed and, and stressed. And I would just kind of get up from the desk and wander off. And if I forced myself to sit with it, I could get somewhere. But I really had to kind of make myself sit in the seat and think, just calm down, think it through. And after I did it for that first one, the rest of them have come much more easily. I think partly because I know I can do it. And also because I see the benefit for my process of the writing, having that outline in hand. For me, that works really well. So. Yeah, I do a whole detailed outline for the entire book. And I, I plot the whole thing as if it wasn't going to this editor. I do it for myself. And then I read the note cards, the, the post-it note cards into a Word doc telling the story scene by scene. And that's the synopsis I send to him. Oh, I love that. That's very cool. It works really well. So, all right. So I've been lucky enough to do this with you, you know, more times than I can count. Maybe not so lucky for you. (laughs) I know. It's always fun. (laughs) Jesse helps me plot most of my books. I think all of my books at this point. Um, So for anyone listening who, you know, really struggles with plotting, can you just walk us through the process that you use in more detail? And like, how do you do it? How long does it take you to do it? You know, what are the things that you're thinking about all of all of the things. All the juicy bits? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So generally speaking, 
I start my all of my books with just some sort of a nugget of an idea. It's very often place. Um, when I'm writing series, I already know the place, so it might be more of a situation. With the series I'm writing, they're sequentially done, so I know when in time this book will be taking place. So I start to do some research on current events that were happening. I write historical novels. And so I can look up in newspaper archives and other sources, things that were happening and just kind of prime the pump of ideas. And it makes me curious. I follow my curiosity. That's my number one rule. Follow the fun, follow the curiosity. And so I start gathering up information and thoughts and they start to just kind of stick to each other a little at a time. And I just make a note of this and a note of that. And before too long, I have a lot of questions about how it could pertain to the story. So pull out a notebook and I start asking myself questions in the notebook and I answer the questions in the notebook and I answer it in a lot of ways and they could be totally contradictory. But when I answer it in a way that I'm like, oh yeah, that's good. You circle the answer. And then I ask more questions often based on that answer. So I keep going and keep going till I feel a little itchy, like it's time to start really making this story. And then I move to a giant board I have in the wall of my office. It's a glass board. And I start mind mapping and scrawling out possibilities and scratching them out and whatever. And there comes a point where I'm ready to start moving these disparate thoughts into something a little more concrete. So what I do with my own books, but I also do it with clients like you, is to have a sense of the length of the novel that I'm expected to write, either what I prefer to write or what I've been contracted to write. And then I have a sense of the number of words that I usually write in a scene. I think that's something that's really great to know as a novelist, approximately how many words you tend to write in scenes. We all have a natural length. And Based on that, I'll do some math to figure out how many scenes are probably going to be in this novel. Usually at this point, I have a sense of how many um, protagonists, how many point of view characters, and I'll break it out, the number of scenes, maybe it's two protagonists, they're equally weighted, that's 24 scenes each if it's a 48 scene novel. And I put some sticky notes up um, using a, a three act structure. That would be 12 scenes for act one, 24 for act two, 12 scenes for act three. Just put them up, stick them up on the wall. And then I start writing down on other sticky notes, ideas I have for things that are happening in the book. So like with your books, Liz, we always talk about um, who are the, who could be the victim and who could be the, the suspects and what are some of the events that are taking place in the course of the novel. And each of those things suggest a scene, the introduction of each of those characters and things that need to get done. And those discrete chunks of story get written on the, on the sticky notes. And I start replacing those blank sticky notes in my roadmap with these other sticky notes, approximately where I think they're going to go. And they get rearranged and then one thing leads to another where logically between these two scenes that are out of order and a big gap, you've got to keep closing in between them. Well, what would happen in between there to get from point A to point B? And the plot emerges little by little by continuing to ask those questions about who could it be. You use story structure, black moment, midpoint, um, deciding to go on the journey, the climax scene of the novel, those fixed points are sort of roadmap signs to head for with all of these loose scenes. 
but it's a very organic process. You don't have to know things in order and you don't have to know them fast. You just kind of keep following your curiosity and picking along until all of a sudden there's a book. So can we go back to two things that you said? So first of all, just for people who aren't familiar with the three-act structure, can you talk about the black moment a little bit? So the black moment is generally about three quarters of the way through the book. And it's a, as sort of an all hope is lost kind of a place, generally speaking. The resource you need to fix the spaceship blows up just as it's approaching your spaceship. Or the person that your protagonist, who's the amateur sleuth, is certain is the bad guy, ends up dead. Definitely yeah. not the bad guy, because or at least they're not the only bad guy, because they're dead. So it's that, oh no, now what? We're really going in the wrong direction. We have to scramble and, and shift things up happens at the black moment. And that happens at three quarters of the way through a novel, generally, or a movie. I mean, any sort of storytelling, our brains are wired for storytelling to pace along in a certain way. And a reversal of magnitude happens in good storytelling at about three quarters of the way through for human brains. So there's that piece. Um, Three-act structure is the, it's a patterning that has been used by novelists and, and playwrights for a long time. It's a way to help build tension over the course of the story arc. It helps to provide good architecture for the characters to move through. And it's something that humans are familiar with, at least in Western culture. And we like it. We expect it. We like it. And it feels right to us, like things are well written when they're laid out with these pillars within them. Yeah. And I, I love that because I, I, I know every time we sit down and plot a book together, <laughs> I'm always like, I'm always stuck on the black moment for some reason. Like I can never, that seems to be a sticking point for me where I can never figure out a moment that's black enough that seems to fit. <laughs> so, so I guess I'm not just, I'm just not asking the right questions. Um, I mean, I can get pretty black, but <laughs> there's, there's just something about that point where I feel like there's a lot of pressure around it. So I don't know if that's you know, something that you've ever run into where you're like, oh, do I, am I, do I have the right black moment? Do I, you know, do I need to go back and change this? Um, have you ever run into that? Well, I think that's one of the things that I like about the way that I plot is because I, I can see chunks of story emerging sort of like a movie playing behind my eyes uh, as I see different discrete chunks but I don't force myself to know where they go as I generate them. And one of the things about the three-act structure and about things like the black moment versus the midpoint versus the bottom of the first act where there's a commitment to going on this journey that the story is going to go on by the main characters is that there's inherently rising tension. It just goes and builds and goes and builds and goes and builds. So, when I'm looking at the pieces, and I've done this with you, we've had this happen before, where you know you want something to happen and something to happen and something to happen, and at first it looks like that something might be the midpoint, but we realize, no, that is the high action point of the, of the story, and it can be moved there by doing this on sticky notes and being flexible and being open to the possibilities and being kind to yourself and not having to know immediately mm. what's going to happen, taking that pressure off yourself, well, which one is this highest tension piece can wiggle them around you have the 
I mean, that's part of the creative process to reevaluate and change things up. And I think by not forcing yourself to do it in order, it really helps to, to let you discover that as it emerges instead of forcing it. Yeah, no, that's really true. Cause I do, I, I am one of those people where I'm like, no, I have to, I either have to figure it all out now <laughs> or I have to leave it till later when I know more about the story and fill it in. And I think that's where I get into trouble. Cause I, then I don't ever feel like I'm <laughs> knowing enough, right. To come up with exactly the right thing. And it, I, I, I think for me, like I make it hard as I'm sure you can attest to, I definitely put a lot of pressure on, on the process. So I definitely get stuck a lot with trying to figure out what exactly my black moment is. Um, and then I, then it makes me anxious that I'm not going to have a good black moment. And so then that's where I kind of freeze up and don't continue. (laughs) So how do you handle that? I think that really that's how some of the technique works really well for trying to pull apart generating scene ideas and separately organizing them. So when we've worked together in the past and when I've worked with other clients, and I feel it for myself as well, trying to make yourself think about what's going to happen and almost simultaneously where that scene should take place in the novel, it's asking too much. It feels like stop and go traffic. And that's a really unpleasant feeling that breaks gas, breaks gas. And the brain does it too. And it's a way to really choke off creativity. And I think it's really unpleasant. It's quite painful to try and force yourself to know where things go, just as you're kind of getting into that delicious part that is dreaming up interesting things. And so by letting yourself, giving yourself permission to just scrawl out onto the sticky notes or a big wall space ideas that come to you of something that would be interesting, a great creative body drop location, a fully blown over the top character that strides onto the stage, a beautiful setting that you really want to explore, a a time period that you that's really atmospheric and you'd like to go ahead and anchor your reader in the Victorian dining table cutlery extravaganza (laughs) that would be so immersive, whatever it is, putting that onto the sticky note just because it occurs to you that you want to include it and just staying with that kind of behavior for a while and letting yourself just have all of those ideas and then putting them into formation as a separate part of the process. I think it really helps people. It gives them permission to play and have fun and to enjoy the brainstorming without the criticism. Because the criticism, I think, is what locks you down. That evaluation of where does it go? Is it good enough? Does it belong here? I don't know. That's just, it's it's a misery. And I think yeah. it's a common common misery. And I think it's a reason that a lot of people resist plotting because they associate it with that outlining that you might have learned to do like in the third or fourth grade that feels so rigid and Mm -hmm. anti-creative. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. (laughs) Um, So I want to also go back to your comment about the question or your tactic about the questions and asking the questions. So what does that look like for you? I know you've done it for me, but you know, for, for the benefit of people who are listening to this and trying to figure out how it works, 
like, what does that look like? So for, for instance, I have a character right now who I'm trying to figure out like what she knows and, and what she's doing about it. So maybe I'll ask myself that question, right? What does, what does Gabby know? And then where do you go from there? Like how, how deep into this do you get? So one of the things that I think is really key is the question is great. I think the answers are where the juice is, right? And the, the willingness to answer it in a variety of ways. So let's say you have a character who, what do we want to say? Uh, give me the name of your character. We'll do a little Gabby. quick example. Gabby. So who is Gabby? She's the protagonist. She's a antagonist. Who is she? She's one of the protagonists, we think. Um, She's she's involved peripherally in what's going on, but she has um, a bunch of pieces of the puzzle that nobody knows about, and I'm trying to figure out what those pieces are. Okay, so what's what's Abby's job? She runs a safe house at a school for emotionally troubled children. Okay, Uh, does she like her job? She does. How long has she been there? Well, her family owns the, the school and the whole, um, she, you know, she's been with it her whole life. Her, it's been in her family, you know, her father's whole life, her grandfather's whole life. They established it. They've built it. So she's been kind of brainwashed into, you know, feeling like this is her entire world. Okay. So um, how long has she lived? Has, how long has she actually been someone in a position of power there, not just a child raised up in the family of this business? She's probably been there now for seven or eight years. Seven or eight years. Is she respected? Yes. Who respects her? Mostly her peers, because the people in leadership positions think that she's, you know, just there because of her her dad, and and they're uh, worried that she's going to surpass them in terms of leadership potential. And who are her peers? Um, The counselors that she works with, some of the teachers, you know, people running the clinical pieces of the operation. And who are the previous leadership people that are concerned about her chomping at their heels? So the actual people running the school. So the director of operations, the, you know, executive director, all of those. There's like four or five leaders, like high up leadership positions. Okay. So if I were doing this with you and we were doing it with sticky notes and a big board, we would be able to fill out conservatively eight scenes with what you've just told me. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Right, because we would be, (laughs) but we would be what you. But you know a lot about your book, and you've just told me a lot about your book. And this is where people think they don't plot, think they don't plan. Mm. So you know that she has family. So you could one scene where she's reflecting on her life in this place with her family. Maybe she's wandering through the grounds and remembering when she was there with her grandfather, and he was telling her X, Y, or Z. You can have her at a board meeting where you're introducing all of those people on the board. You could have her in a phone call where she's like slams the phone down and then she turns to somebody who happens to see it and she complains about the person who thinks she's chomping at their heels. You could have her interacting with one of those people or a second person. You have her interacting with each of her peers that she's, you have to introduce them. Hmm. So we were talking about maybe eight scenes that add to the bottom line. And in each of these scenes, she can be having conversations about these things that she knows. And as you think about her interacting with those people, things will occur to you that she could know based on what, who she interacts with. She knows things in part because of who she connects with. And asking the questions and answering the questions keeps pointing you along the story. It's, it's the call and response that makes it all work. 
Hmm. And we know more than we realize. Every time I work with, with a client about something like this and ask questions, they're always surprised at how much of their story is in so what they think is so little of an idea. Hmm. But it's not. It's really in there. Yeah. No, I love that because I wouldn't have thought, you know, I mean, in my head, I would know, oh, yeah, she has to have a meeting with so-and-so or we have to do. But to me, that's not like, I don't think of that, like you said, as myself doing some plotting. I think of it as just something that needs to happen. <laughs> right. So, Which is a I think it's, plot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. So if, if you do it deliberately, <laughs> yeah. it is all about mindset. It's if you think of it in those ways, like the fact that you need to introduce that person is a plot point. Yeah. If that person exists, they need to exist on the page, probably, or they need to be referred to on the page. In some way they exist. That's part, it's a plot point. Yep. And you could just tease all of it out from these questions and answers. Every time we've done it together, it's been entirely based on questions and answers. Yeah, no, totally. And it's, it always works, but it's, I feel like for some reason when I'm doing it myself, I'm not getting the same results. So. That's because you're not as nice to you as I am to you. That is true. <laughs> I that certainly true. am not. <laughs> oh, funny. So do you ever start a book before you finish plotting or no? I have made the attempt to do so once, twice since I've started in a committed way plotting out a whole novel. And I would say both times have been very, very challenging and have mm. not have not gone well. They have not gone well. At this point in time, for me, this is my best way. This is my process. And it, it feels um, freeing to me to, to be able to f- watch myself make the progression through to, to get more clear and more clear on what's going on because I've got my arms around the story, because I've got my arms around the action blocking. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I don't have, when I thought, well, maybe I'll just wing it and see what happens. I, I've done it. And it has been, for me, spectacularly defeating. Mm. <laughs> it's just not worked well at all. It's taken me far longer. I got really lost. I, I had a really hard time making one of my deadlines by doing that. Um, and on a book that I've been working on that wasn't contracted yet, it wasn't making progress on it. So for me, it doesn't it doesn't work well. That said, I don't know that that will always be the case. I'm always open to the idea that people have ages and stages and changes and a case-by-case scenario for whatever's working. And if at some point I had plotted something and then that wasn't working, if I kept looking at it and tried to adjust and, and troubleshoot why it wasn't working, I would be willing to just kind of crumple it up, throw out the outline and give it another go with nothing in mind and see what happened. Um, Who knows? Maybe in another 10 years, I'll be someone who just wings it all the time. You never can tell. (laughs) Jesse is a pantser. Wow. That would be interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I'd be curious to see what would happen. (laughs) Me too. Do you ever um, veer off your outline at all? Like, Do your characters ever just say, no, we're not doing that. We're doing this. Well, I think this is one of the things that I also, I think is problematic about the conversation around plotting and pantsing is that the detail level of the plot really varies from writer to writer. So my plot may seem like it's really quite extensive and I end up 
doing a, each scene kind of gets blown out to maybe two sentences or a paragraph when I turn it into my editor. But I don't have a ton of detail per scene. It's more like, I think of it as um, like a high school play mm. and the kids are all showing up for practice. And one of the first things that they're doing, the director's putting them through blocking and that's where everyone will be when they're supposed to be there, who moves on the stage, who moves off the stage. And it's not costuming and it's not lighting and it's not the, the emotion they bring to their voice. And it's not the chemistry between actors. It's just physically, where are you going and when are you getting there? And for me, my plotting is a lot like that blocking. And when I sit down to write the scene, to actually write that first draft of the scene, it's more like beginning to bring on a costume, beginning to develop chemistry between the actors. So I wrote uh, a scene yesterday in the, the novel I'm working on, and I, had, I knew what was going to be happening in the scene. I was introducing two characters, and I wrote the scene, and I was dissatisfied with it. I was glad that I worked on it, but I knew it wasn't right. And this morning, before I sat down to the desk again, I realized that I had gotten their attitudes confused, that the mm. person who was supposed to be the more pushing forward and reaching her hand out was the one who didn't the original way that I had gotten it done. So I don't know that I have ideas for exactly what the character should feel like or behave like. I just sort of know approximately what's going to go down in the scene. And I made, I, so yeah, I changed my mind when I show up, the, the tone of it, the who takes the lead, that changes and shifts. Um, yeah, yeah, they do, they do show up and, and do the things they feel like doing uh, with some degree of regularity. <laughs> yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, my, my, my people are never that obedient, so... <laughs> <laughs> Even well, when I give maybe it my best shot. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's a question of like, it, sometimes you can't tell till you sort of put it through its paces, right? I thought that the direction I was trying to head in yesterday was correct. But when it was on the page, it felt flat and I, I was not satisfied. And it, it, but unless I'd given it that go, I wouldn't know it wasn't right. It's sort, yeah. sort of a, like a second draft in a way, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. So with that in mind, how long does it take you to actually write the book once you've done this hard work of plotting most of it out or all of it out? <laughs> so I, it really does depend on the novel. Some of them come out easier and some of them come out harder. Uh, that said, I do tend to be a pretty fast writer. Um, I dictate my novels, so that makes them a lot faster because I'm a really lousy typist. And when the plot is solid and I know what I'm doing when I sit down to work and I start to get some feeling about who's who, it does start to move quickly. So the first, I would say the first quarter of the book is the part that takes me the longest because I am figuring out things like, oh no, that's the woman who would be extending her hand. That's the woman who would be gr grateful to grab it. Like I know that by the end of the first quarter of the book, I'm figuring it out. So after I've sort of gotten those things together and I've got a plot that I'm happy with, momentum gathers. 
and the the next three quarters of the book tend to hurdle along quickly. So I usually give myself a, about six weeks for a first draft, and that's working, I don't know, a couple of hours every morning, five days a week. That's wow. usually about right. Um, my second draft takes, I usually figure about um, a month for the second draft and then a couple of weeks for the third draft. So, um, but the, it depends, you know, some books are longer than others. Some books are more complicated. Sometimes I just really misjudge something and have to double back and redo. Um, yep. So it does vary, but approximately when things are going well, about six weeks, a month, and then another two weeks. So about, about three months usually mm. is what it takes, plus whatever time it takes me to plot. Yep. But it's a much smoother process with the plotting already behind you. <laughs> For me, it is. Because when yeah. I sit down to work, I don't wonder what I'm working on. Yeah. Also, and I will say this, and I think that this is one of the real strengths of plotting. Um, I don't make myself write linearly. So if I have mm. the plot, if I get to, I, I write the next scene I want to write. And usually I'm starting to write them in order. But if I come to a scene that I don't want to write, I skip it. I go on to the next scene I feel like writing and that works really well. And it works really well, partly because I'm doing something I want to do. I'm continuing to follow the fun, but it also gives me the chance to ask myself, why don't I want to write that? Because if I don't want to write that, it's because there's something wrong with that. And there's, mm -hmm. and my unconscious, subconsciously, there's something going on that I, I, something's wrong and it gives me time to troubleshoot it. Maybe it's somebody, the wrong person's perspective that it's in. Something about it isn't right. That's why I'm resisting it every single time. And by having that plot to be able to sort of look at it, I can troubleshoot before I spend my work time writing something that's painful to cut, but really doesn't work for the book. Yeah, I love that. And I love the follow the fun. <laughs> And I do like the, that whole concept of realizing that it might be something wrong with the scene or that it might not be the right thing to include. Cause I've had plenty of times where I haven't wanted to write something. And then I end up, you know, when I'm, even if I do write it, I, it ends up coming out in the mm -hmm. final draft. So well, I think most authors have good taste. And so when they don't want to do something, it's because they have good storytelling taste from all of the enthusiastic reading they've done, right? Mm. They just know when something's off, even if they can't put their finger on why. Yeah, for sure. So we've been listening to this debate about plotting and pantsing our whole careers. And, you know, I remember at the very beginning thinking there was something wrong with me because I, I had started out as a pantser. Now I think I'm not completely a plotter, but I'm getting there thanks to you. <laughs> and it's, it has been easier, but you know, what do, do you think people can change their approach if they want to, do you think they should change their approach? Like, what do you think about this whole plotter pantser thing? I think that the best thing people can do is to do what works for them. And if something's not working, being curious and, doing your research and looking at what other people are doing, having conversations with other writers, asking them what works for them, maybe trying something out if, if you're curious about it and it sounds like, oh, maybe, like give it a try. I, I don't think there's any badge of honor to be associated with either of these ways of doing things. And I think it's 
it's not a bad thing to sort of cobble together both approaches whenever it would work for you or however. The only thing that matters is that in the end, you've you're holding something you're glad you created, right? And however you get there is valid and is fine. Being, I think being soft about what is possible is good for artists of all sorts. Being open to times when you want to structure more heavily and times when you want to lean into just seeing what flows through you when you start your day. These are all valid. They're all good. I I don't think anyone should try to force themselves into a box that feels really uncomfortable for them and that takes the fun out of the process. But if you're struggling and you just have told yourself the story that, oh, I'm always a plotter or I'm always a pantser, but you're struggling, maybe it's time to look at why are you clinging to that label for yourself? Maybe you should make some wiggle room to go the other way and see what there might be for you there that could bring some verve back to what it is that you do. Yeah. Change the story. We can all change our stories, right? Yeah. Right. You change the story and your own story. Absolutely. So similarly and building on that, um, we've heard some people who are firmly in the pantser camp say that, you know, people who are plotting are missing out on the quote magic of writing. I'm really curious what you have to say about that. Well, I think that I would I would say that there's perhaps a lack of clarity around what plotting looks like for the people who are doing it and are finding it to be successful. I would contend that a plot comes out of the same sort of magical places that an unplotted first draft does. I mean, they don't come from an inherently different location. <laughs> it's all being pulled out of the ether of creativity. So whether yep. you are deliberately dipping into that well and deliberately bringing back bits of it and constructing it within a plot, an outline, a sticky note template, or you're doing it in what would be a discovery draft they are inherently the same. And I say this from having been someone who sat down and forced herself to move through from not having an outline to having an outline and feeling all of that same stress that would bubble up while doing a first draft, not knowing what was going to happen. It was just compressed in time. That same exact range of like overwhelm and indecision and all of that stuff. It was just compressed and deliberate. And I think that to, to say that it's less magical somehow, I think perhaps that displays a lack of awareness about what it's like for plotters and even what it's like for themselves. Where is this coming from? How is it getting done? Mm. I think it's all magical. And as long as books are being made that people love and find transportive and enriching, it doesn't make any difference whatsoever how it gets done. It's all magic. I love that. And I agree. Totally. It's, uh, it, there might be a little bit more blood, sweat, and tears if you're choosing a path that doesn't totally work for you. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, at, at some point we all get there, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. 
So, all right. So you offer plotting services to people on a professional basis. So tell us about this part of your business and how would someone go about contacting you if they were interested in a session? So I work with people who have um, either an idea for a novel or someone who has a contract for a novel and no idea about that novel. <laughs> so um, that happens more frequently than you would, uh, yeah, when, than you would well, think. Um, I'm usually those people. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe not more often than you would think. But um, it's, uh, I, I generally work with people that have some writing experience under their belt. I think what I have to offer is the most useful for people who have, even people who have actually already written at least one novel and maybe more than one. I like to work with people who are published. Um, I really love helping them to go from panicked, um, sobbing individuals with an upcoming deadline to somebody who's confidently marching towards turning it in and to pretending like nothing bad ever happened. Um, that is delightful. <laughs> so um, what... I do with them is I book a session on Zoom generally. Occasionally I end up working with people in person, but usually I do it on Zoom. And we just book as many sessions as we need to untangle the plot. They come with what little they know or how much they know. Uh, they often send me a synopsis of whatever they have for any kind of ideas in an email ahead of time. I look it over and then we chat a little bit about their contract and the length of book they're trying to create and the genre it's in, et cetera. And then we just start out with the questions and answers, questions and answers, pulling forward what it is that they know. And when they start to get that glazed over look, I say, let's, you know, wrap up for today and come back again later after you've had a nice long nap <laughs> and we might do another <laughs> session. Um, and usually they get what they need out of it, whether it's um, just to pull apart a naughty problem in the middle of their novel that they have underway, or to get enough of the novel plotted so that they can get going on it. Oftentimes, they don't need to consult with me again because they can do that for themselves, or they're just off on such a momentum kind of a tear that they just keep rolling on through to the end. Um, so whatever I do for services with them really is tailored to what they need from me. And it's a wide range of those kinds of things. Um, if they want to get a hold of me, they can email me. I'm jessica at jessicaellicott.com. And uh, just send me an email. And I'd be happy to chat with anybody who wants to talk plotting, even if they've never done it before. I assure you, it's less painful than you might think. I would highly recommend anybody who is trying to write a book to call Jesse <laughs> or email Jesse. <laughs> It will, you will be so happy that you did. Um, she saved my butt uh, many times. So. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> All right. Before we go, I've got a few rapid fire questions for you. So right. one or two sentences. How or when did you know you were going to be a writer? I think I always knew before I knew it was a job. Um, I had a really, really soap operatic uh, cast of imaginary friends as a very small child. And um, I always like to make them more and more entangled in miseries and things that look like they were unsolvable. Um, they weren't li living happily ever after, at least not at the beginning. So I think it started very, very young. That's funny you say that because I, at one point, actually outlined a soap opera 
like a town, <laughs> a, a cast of people with all these romantic dilemmas. I mean, it was pretty in, intense. <laughs> so, <laughs> it never oh. got made into a, an actual show, though, I have to say. Sadly. I'd love to see that script. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what's your favorite book on writing? One that I have barely recently read, like in the last year and a half, that I just loved is an is a book called The Heroine's Journey by Gail Carriger. There's another Heroine's Journey no, uh, book out there, but it's not the same one. This is by Gail Carriger, and it's about a different sort of story structuring around a heroine's journey as opposed to the hero's journey. And it really aligns more with the kind of writing that I do. And it lifted some um, blinders off of my eyes about why it was that some of the things suggested in books around the hero's journey just didn't work well with the types of stories that I tell. It felt fresh, it felt validating, and it was, I recommend it to everybody. I just love that book. Love it. Okay. Good one. Um, all right. I know this next one's going to be hard, so you don't have to give me just one, but favorite author of all time. Oh, impossible. So, um, <laughs> There are several. I really love um, E.F. Benson, the author of the Map and Lucia books. I really love P.G. Woodhouse. Um, I, of course, love Agatha Christie. I love Ellie Griffith for a, a newer author. Um, I love Lloyd Alexander. He was the Harry Potter sort of author of my childhood, the... Um, just love his his books and I am a big big fan of um Beatrix Potter mm. oh I love that all right one no fail way to get out of a writing slump aside from plotting <laughs> <laughs> I think doing something else that fills your creative well can be a really good thing so if you're someone who has other creative hobbies or interests whether it's art or music or uh, something like baking or um, throwing parties. I mean, if, like, if entertaining as a creative pursuit is something you enjoy, um, all of those things I think can feed the well, you know, just going ahead and indulging in other types of ways of being in the world that sort of brings stuff back to that, wellspring that you have to have in order to keep dippering out. Um, and I am always a, an advocate of lighthearted fun, whatever that means to you, whether mm. it's binge watching, you know, favorite rom-coms or going hiking or getting together with writer friends and talking about some sort of mystery poison you've just heard about that is guaranteed not to get picked up by path labs. If that's your sense of fun, <laughs> doing those things, I think really can help shake things. I think a lot of times we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to make it serious and heavy and determined. And that can, I think that oftentimes the, quickest way to get between two points is not a straight line. Mm -hmm. So slowing down, having fun, lifting your eyes off the page and taking it somewhere else that fills your well can be the fastest way to get back to what it is that you want to do. Totally. And using a different piece of your brain, right? I think sometimes can help us too. 
Absolutely. I love to keep knitting on my desk as a, mm. as a um, tangle buster. Like it's just mm. something about that moving two hands, the, both hemispheres of the brain are clicking along and I'm up and out of my concrete thoughts. I love it. All right. Best piece of writing advice you ever got? You know, I really struggle with this one because it's asked on panels oftentimes, mm. and I never feel like I have a good answer. I feel like there's so much advice that sometimes it feels overwhelming. And I, I guess the, I guess the best piece I really ha- think that I employ often is just move on to the next book. Just get going with the next book. You turn a book in, you don't know if it's going to sell. You don't know what the reviews are going to be like. You don't know anything. Forget about it. Yep. it it's it's, you know, that it's now out of your control. The only yeah. thing in front of you is the next book. So turn your eyes over there. And I think that's the, that's probably the writing advice I employ the most often is to move on to the next thing. So far, Got so it. good. Yeah, no, it's all you can do, right? Um, okay. And final question, favorite song on your writing playlist. So I don't listen to anything with lyrics and I, on my, when I'm writing, I find that really distracting. So I have a couple of different, um, like just binaural soundscapes that I listen mm-hmm. to on Spotify or Tidal. And I find those to be really useful. I also really love my Bose noise canceling headphones and I just turn them on and listen to nothing except the muffled sweet seat sound of my own brain swishing around. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I got to try that. <laughs> Very cool. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I know people are going to love this episode and I mean, I'm continually fascinated by how your brain works. So, and I appreciate all the help that you've given me and I look forward to many more plotting sessions. <laughs> so. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. I always love plotting with you. I expect to hear from you soon because I think that you have a deadline. Do you not? I do. So, yes, I'll be reaching out to you right after we hang up this call. (laughs) We'll be talking soon, I'm sure. I'll make room on my board for your work. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wow, what a conversation, right, guys? I hope you all love that as much as I did. I can't say enough how much Jesse's influence has helped my own writing. I mean, even just this session today that she and I were just talking, I, and we did that really quick, you know, tell me a little bit about your character. I, I literally had to run to my pen when I was done and, and write down all of those ideas because, I mean, that's definitely going to help me fill in some scenes and also get around some stuck points that I was having with this other book I'm writing. So she's helped my writing. She's helped my mental health because I don't have to get so stressed out about books or deadlines anymore, which is always a good thing. So I hope this served you. I'd love to hear what resonated most with you all in this episode. So let me know over on Instagram. You'll find that along with all Jesse's info in the show notes and make sure you subscribe. It would really mean the world to me if I could get this podcast in front of more writers because I really just want to help people keep writing. So thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week.